Good morning, friends. How are you going? Good. A couple of you out there doing well. I hope the rest of you are too. As Ryan said, in the next couple of months, we're going to be going through a sermon series in the book of Mark. It's uh, one of the biographies written about Jesus Christ by a guy called John Mark off of the preaching of Peter. It's going to be amazing. Just follow Jesus. Don't worry about the trappings. Don't get, you know, worried about all the other stuff and the religiosity. Let's just follow Jesus. It's going to be really wonderful. Today, I thought, by way of a preparatory thing, getting ready for that, and it's great seeing Ryan and Diego there in DC, him getting him ready for college. We're going to get our hearts ready for it. We're going to look at one of the uh, prophetic passages that's quoted in uh, Mark chapter 1, we're going to get to next week, about John the Baptist, the one who comes and paves a way for the coming king. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, they're the other, a couple of the other biographies written about Jesus. These words are ascribed to John the Baptist that Lindsay read out from Isaiah, written some 700 years before. In the biography of John, written about Jesus, he, he also, John the baptizer, also ascribes those words to himself. But we're going to see that these words, they speak to us today as well. I've called today, hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Because when we're waiting on the Lord, we mayn't fully understand the end point. And, and it may not go on the timeline that we want. And in fact... Uh, the way it comes about might not be the way that we thought it would come about. But if we are willing to have pliable hearts, if we are willing to wait upon the Lord, to hope upon the Lord, those words have the, the, the same Hebrew word root, if we're willing to wait upon the Lord, to hope upon the Lord with pliable hearts, He will renew our strength. So before I get into that though, I just want to reference what an amazing weekend last weekend was in our church there just seems such an energy and such an excitement about it and I for one and all the staff but also I'm I'm here as a person and me and my family this is our church our spiritual home we are so excited delighting in all that God has done through Mark and Jan our senior pastors and, and all that happened there but so looking forward to all that God has for us in the future I'm just over the moon I hope you're going to uh, join me in that excitement let's pray then let's get into the Word of God here together. Oh God, we thank you for your love, that you would love imperfect people like us. Thank you that you're alive in this Jesus community. You're doing your work. You're renewing us. Uh, your Spirit breathing life into us, transforming us, that we in turn could be agents of transformation. God, I ask that today you would speak through the words of Scripture. I ask that you diminish my voice. I ask that you'd amplify your voice. You're the one that we've come to hear from. So we love you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in uh, 1998, I took a, a year off with my wife off of our university studies and we traveled abroad. About the middle of the year, we ended up in South Africa. We're in a place called Soweto, which is a massive township or, or slum. Soweto, Southwest Township. They just take the first two letters of each of those. That's where the name comes from. And we were there and uh, 
seeing this amazing ministry stuff that was going on. And then we came across this part of Soweto where there was this hive of activity. People madly painting things and filling in potholes and fixing things up and security guards everywhere and all. And I'm like, what's going on? And this local guy said, well, actually, the president of the U.S. is coming through here in a couple of days. At the time was Bill Clinton. He was going to be coming through. And, and so we're fixing it all up. And the security guys, I guess, checking there's no vantage points for nasty things and whatever. And, and part of me thought, it must be really weird being the president. Because wherever you go, it's all sort of curated. And it might add to you getting a little bit of a God complex, perhaps. I'm not saying anyone would have that, but if you did, you know. And then I also thought, maybe you have a sneaking suspicion that the world's it smells like drying paint. You know, wherever you go, it's always, can you smell that? I just, uh, you know. But, but what I thought was, it was a good image. This is a very, very rich biblical image. In the ancient Near East, emissaries would go out, representatives would go out ahead of monarchs, and they would pave the way. They would fill in the potholes. They would get obstacles out of the way. They would fix things up. Royalty is coming. So the question that we're going to end with today, a few minutes from now, is what would it look like for us, what would it look like for you to pave the way for the coming king, to lay out the red carpet for the coming king, to fix up the potholes, to get obstacles out of the way for ourselves, our own spirituality, also, though, for others that we love? What would that look like? As Lindsay read out here... A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. In the wilderness. Can I have the picture up, guys, of the Judean countryside? So it's hard to describe, unless you've grown up somewhere like Arizona or Western Australia, the bleakness of the wilderness in that part of the world. Throughout Scripture, this symbol of the wilderness is an ambiguous image. It can go one of each way. It can be a place actually of great life if cultivated well, or it can also be a place of reckoning. It can be a place of epiphany. Jesus had it when he was out in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. God's people, after they left the Exodus, were traveling through the wilderness. Here, the prophet is employing it, and we see this in later parts of Isaiah, as a um, corrective as a rebuke, actually, you've become a barren wilderness. You notice it says a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Who is that one? That's a good question. We know that it's, uh, like I said, it's ascribed to John the Baptist who's paving the way in the wilderness for Jesus. But here, Isaiah is actually employing it for himself. Now, a little bit of background. Prophets in the Old Testament were not always super-liked. Prophets, even in our own day, are not really super liked for a couple of reasons. One is the message that they bring, and the second one is they're often just a little bit weird. Okay? <laughs> the message they bring. Generally, they begin really popular, and they come, and John was popular. John the Baptist, he had a lot of people going out into the wilderness to see him, but he was preaching a gospel of repentance repent from your sins. You've not loved the Lord as you've been told to, as you've covenanted with Him that you would. Caring for the oppressed, caring for the orphan, caring for the refugee. Having a, a true and authentic spirituality rather than the husk of it, like an empty outside shell of it. 
And he got less and less popular until eventually his head ended up on a platter. We're going to hear about that in a few weeks. Isaiah himself, he started out, you know, people listening to him. He's a pretty wise guy, pretty amazing guy. He prophesied over a little more than 60 years. But when he ended, so tradition has it that he was sawn in half at the, um, the leading of uh, Manasseh, King, King Manasseh. He became less and less popular, but also because, frankly, prophets are a little bit strange. I mean, John's out there. He's out in the wilderness. He's eating wild honey, biting the heads off locusts, got wild eyes, probably dreadlocks. He's a little bit odd. And Isaiah himself, you know, there was a time, and it talks about it in Isaiah 20, where for three years he prophesied naked. Yeah, without clothes on, right? Can you imagine? You think it would be a little distracting? He was in his 40s. I'm just saying. <laughs> Anyone? Don't worry. New church is, is next week. Yeah. <laughs> just in case someone's wondering, actually, it's not. New church is, new church is never. Okay, we're not ever going to do that. But, but like, do you think it would be a bit, a bit odd? I, I think it would be a bit odd. This is, this is Isaiah the prophet. Here, here's what I want to say, that... That the message that prophets bring is corrective, not always popular. Talking about present realities and our, our falling short of who we've called to be. What's known as forthtelling. And yet also they can be foretelling, telling about future events, what is coming. And they can be both at the same time. Can I have up that, the timeline thing? Uh, it's a rather boring looking slide. Here we go. I did my best. What can I say? So this, this is, I just want to make a simple point with this, but there's some background that we need to get our heads around. In 930 BC, the kingdom of Israel was split between the northern, uh, it was called Israel, the ten tribes, and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, called, they called it Judah, right? The kingdom of Judah split over taxation actually funnily enough secessionist movement there we go anyway but the point being right a couple of hundred years on from that Isaiah was commissioned in chapter 6 it's fast, a fascinating passage we don't have time to go into it but then he prophesied for you know 60 odd years keep in mind we're counting backwards right in the middle of that time the northern kingdom Israel fell to the Assyrians that shaped his worldview. Some of his words are for them. Most of his words are for the southern kingdom, right? The kingdom of Judah. And look at that. About a hundred years, not quite after Isaiah prophesied or was sawn into, he died, whatever, Judah fell. The southern tribe fell to the kingdom of Babylon. And the temple was destroyed. The people were taken off in exile into Babylon. But then fast forward, Babylon itself falls to the Persians, is Israel is like, and, and Judah are like these little bits of flotsam and jetsam floating around in a world that's just a morass, right? But Babylon falls to Persia. King Cyrus comes in, a bit of a walkthrough, and then the following year he sends back the first uh, wave of exiles who return to rebuild Jerusalem. Then the second wave comes. The first wave was Zerubbabel, second wave was Ezra, third wave Nehemiah, and so on. You guys have read that, that part, some of you, I'm sure. But it's about 70 years from when exile began to when they returned and, and rededicated the second temple. So here's my point. Isaiah was speaking about present realities, things that were going on in his world, a corrective to what was happening. And 
he's speaking about events that were going to happen almost 170 years from when he spoke. Can you imagine if someone came up to you, hey, I've got a word for you. It's for 170 years from now. You'd be like, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, that's a long time. And yet also, Isaiah was speaking words about the coming Messiah. It was going to happen about 700 years from then. Think about that. I mean, our nation is, in world terms, a, a middle-aged nation. But 700 years from that point? But also, he's talking about the day of the Lord, which is coming. So if you're ever wondering about prophecy, and there's like 500 pages in the middle of your Bible, you're like, what do I even, what do I do with that? Because it's really trippy, and they've got this crazy stuff in there. Keep in mind that there's more going on than you think. And what I, I thought I'd do is, um, and by the way, you're in here too. Look, there you are, 2022, between my legs, you can see it. Hurry up and wait. There you are. And then, that's the symbol for infinity to infinity and beyond. Finally, guitar. That's not meant to be there. Finally, <laughs> finally arrived, right? And so I, got, I thought, what would be a handy image for this? I got this, actually, I got this as a present for Ryan. Uh, but I said, mate, I'm not going to give it to you until I've done the sermon. He's, of course, he's Ryan. He's like, yeah, that's great. So some of you know what this is. Ha-ha, some of you are. Know what this be? Arr, I'm looking. Arr, arr. Man in the back row, you've got something in your teeth. Arr. It's a pirate spyglass. I, I should probably tell a pirate joke at this point. What do you think? Uh, someone said yes. Uh, that's, all the, that's all the entrance that I need. How much does it cost for a pirate to get his ears pierced? Arr. A buccaneer. Arr. Army hearty down here. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, what do you think be a pirate's favorite letter of the alphabet? R. C, you'd think it'd be R, but no, it is the C. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no. So, so here's, here's my point. <laughs> okay, steady yourselves. Okay. <laughs> Army arties. <laughs> So was, was Isaiah, it's because there's lenses in here, right? Was Isaiah talking about a corrective for people in his day? They'd fallen short of this covenant fidelity. These people, they were called to extraordinary acts of love. They were called to be God's light to the world. They were in fact a barren wasteland. The answer is yes. Was he also talking about the people of God returning from exile 170 years from then? Yes. Was he also talking about Jesus coming 700 years or so. In fact, in these words, uh, ascribed, like I said, to John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus. Yes. Was he also talking about the day of the Lord, the reckoning at the end of time, which, if you're on the right side with Jesus, is a wonderful day. If you're on the wrong side with him, is a day of terror and a day of apocalypse and, and so on and so forth. There will be a reckoning. Make no mistake. All the sin, the awfulness, the things that I've done, let alone the odd thing that out there you guys have done, let alone that all the things cumulatively humans have done. Is it, is it this or is it this or is it this? The answer is yes. The answer is Isaiah is looking through them all and he's looking into the future. And so that's the end of the pirate analogy. Some of you guys are glad about that. Let me just put this away 
So when Ryan comes, because I think that every captain of, of a ship should have a should have something they can stand on the poop deck with and look out to the sea. Ar, ar. But here's, here's where I want to go with that. that. That waiting upon the Lord will mean that we're going to need to give up our desire to know everything and to be right. Because if we're willing to wait on the Lord, to hope in the Lord, then we cannot always clearly see the end point. It may take way longer than we think it should take. And in fact, it may come about through means that we didn't think it was going to come about. I bet you what? I bet you the people who, who had King Cyrus come over and take over Babylon, where they were exiled slaves, I bet you none of them thought, well, this is going to lead to us going back to Jerusalem. It'll come about through crazy means. But if we are willing to have pliant hearts to wait upon the Lord, He will renew our strength. But it takes longer. Can I have the next photo up? guys if it's like an, an old lady um okay this is by rembrandt from the 17th century it's his depiction of the prophet anna in luke 2 jesus the baby jesus was taken to the temple like every good jewish boy eight years old he's circumcised 40 years on uh, 40 days on sorry um he was taken down to the temple to be consecrated as the oldest son of mary his mother and joseph the hero who adopted him. He's a, he's a hero of mine. But, but he's taken out of the temple to be, to be set aside. And, and there's a guy, Simeon, who's been there. And the Spirit has told Simeon he's going to see the Messiah. And then there's Anna, the prophet, and she's there. And she's been waiting to have the Messiah come, that she can see him, that she can prophesy over him. Do you know how long she's been waiting? It said that she was married. And then seven years afterwards, her husband died. And in that culture, she might have been married at 15 or 17 or something. But so she's in her early 20s when her husband dies. She's now 84 years old. Let's call it 60 years. She's been waiting and she pours forth these blessings over him, baby Jesus, and over Mary and over Joseph and all that, that is coming. My point is this. Uh, it doesn't always happen in the timeline we think, oh, I've been praying for this thing for a week. I've been fasting and praying. I mean, I haven't even eaten. Well, I actually ate those Cheetos. But other than that, I've, really, I've been diligent about it. God's not even listening to me. Obviously, it doesn't exist. Or, you know, it's for two years. I've been on my knees praying for a spouse because I don't have one. And I just, is God ignoring me? He doesn't care about me. For a decade. I've been praying for this person, loving on this person, just getting kicked in the teeth by this person. Every time I bring up Jesus, I know they love me and I love them, but gosh, they're mean about it. Doesn't God care for them, friends? What I want to say is, take a step back for a second. Think about it. 60 years for Anna. 170 years for Isaiah. 700 years for when Jesus comes. How many? 2,000, 8,000? We don't know when the final reckoning will be. But friends, if we're willing to wait on the Lord, if we're willing to set aside our desire to be right, to truly wait upon Him, to hope in Him, then something amazing can come about. You notice this passage here, after it talks about the one of in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord, it says this, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
make straight in the desert a highway. Can I have that photo up, friends, of the... It's like an icy sort of highway thing. Now, I saw this photo and I thought it really grabs what I meant. Imagine, imagine making that highway, cutting down the trees, getting the rocks and mountains out of the way, let alone maintaining that highway. My, my point is this, that waiting upon the Lord is not a passive thing. It's an active waiting. Getting it ready and then maintaining it with the guys who go out at dawn with the snow plows and everything like that. Um, it's, it takes a lot of work. It takes a, a lot, a lot of work, actually. And, and here, it goes on and, and it says, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. And I don't want to overdo it with the poetry here, but this made me think of every valley will be raised up. The sadness in me, the depression in me, the, the sense of loss in me, the sense of longing in me, God will, if I let him, he will raise it up. And then the awful stuff that's in me, I'm surely none of you, but in me, the pride and the arrogance and the hubris and all that, that, that will actually, if I allow him, that will be brought low. Why? For his purposes. It's his highway. He's the visiting king. He's the one coming in. And, and the reality is he has a, let's call it a hovercraft or a super Humvee or a tanker. He doesn't actually need me to do it. He doesn't even need us. He lets us be part of it. Will you roll out the red carpet? It's an honor, friends. What would it take for us in our lives to get our hearts ready? What would it take for us in our hearts to get, to get, to pave the way so that others would have obstacles taken out of the way that they could allow King Jesus to come in? The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. This is talking about personal repentance and, and social reformation, social reformation in the fashion that would honor King Jesus, remaking it as a place that is fit for the coming king, a, a guy called Ray Ortland, a theologian, said. Remaking it, remaking the world as a place fit for the coming king. Putting it right. You won't be able to do it all. But this is a call upon us individually as people and as a church collectively. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. It mayn't happen in ways that we thought. This is not what I expected. This is he, God brought about this thing. This wasn't how I would have engineered it, but his engineering is better than mine. He's been willing to admit to that. He has brought this about. He has been doing this. So, so what, is, what does it look like for the glory of the Lord to be revealed? He does it in little small parts. Because if he did it fully, I'm sure we would cease to exist. I'm sure it would be too much. When Mo went up the mountain, came down with the tablets, his face is shining so... He'd been talking with the Lord. His face was shining so brightly, he had to put a veil over his face so it would freak out the other Israelites. In 2 Corinthians 3, where it talks about that, it calls us to be those who shine forth God's glory, who were taken, transformed from glory to glory with ever-increasing glory. I don't know, that sounds like a lot of glory. I'd like to be those who shine that, who represent that to the mates around us, the folks around us. In fact, the Lord's glory will go to the very ends of the earth. 
Kelly and Cindy just got back yesterday from, uh, um, they were out in uh, Ukraine and, and Poland getting ready a team that's going to go out there to serve the refugees. You know the work that, that we've been doing there. It's sort of passed over the news cycle. Guess what? It's still going on. Bringing Christ's love, bringing Christ's Christ forgiveness. Well, it's already there, but we're bringing our hearts in alignment with it. In Habakkuk, one of the other prophets, because you know the, the 500 pages of prophets, there's, there's the biggies, there's Isaiah, and there's Ezekiel, there's Jeremiah, the big ones. Then there's all the little ones, who in your Bible, have you noticed that some gnome gets in there and changes the order about? Because you're like, I thought it was there, but now it's here. Have you noticed that? Is it just me? Anyway, but there's the 12. But Habakkuk's one of the, the later prophets. They call them the minor prophets, right? Not because they're the minor leagues, but just because it's shorter. It's about length, right? But he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You ever been out in the middle of the ocean where you cannot see a bit of land? As the waters cover the sea, God's glory will cover the earth. We are called to be those who bring our hearts in alignment with that as people, as individuals, but also collectively as the people of God. And, and you need to know at the heart of this Jesus community, and I'm, like I said, over the moon with all that God is doing and the leadership transition and everything that's happening, because there is a very strong commitment here to us being renewed by the Spirit, transformed by God, so that we can be agents of transformation to the world here in San Diego, in the US, to the very ends of the earth. This is the calling on us. Let's not be a barren wasteland. Let's wait upon the Lord. Hey, we may not always clearly see the end point. I don't. Even Ryan doesn't. Even with the pirate spyglass, he's not going to exactly see it. And it may not go in the timeline that we want. It may come about through means that we were innovative and we didn't think about. But if we allow our hearts to be in line with God, prepare our hearts. Let's see what he's going to do. And you know, Isaiah is replete again and again. I don't know, three, four dozen times. I think it's 65 or 67 times, depending on how you slice it and dice it. There's references to the coming king. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called what? Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is the one who's coming. This is the one that Isaiah is talking about. Are we willing to bring our agenda in line with his agenda? That's what waiting of the Lord, waiting for the Lord looks like. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. But they may not see it all the same because our perspectives are different. And this is great, it's nourishing, it's rich, and it can also lead to confusion. Guys, can I have up the slide that shows, it's like a bunch of words on a screen. It's a very boring looking slide. Okay. The world that Jesus came into, first century Palestine, had different sects in it. Um, that's S-E-C-T, not sects. There was sects as well, but this was sects, okay, that were, that were there. And this doesn't exhaust them. There were many more than this. And these are indicative, like they're actually population-wise, all of these were a very small, small in number, but uh, very wide in influence. 
And you'll notice in them, as we go through them, there's, there's analogies to the way that we operate today. Because we superimpose upon Jesus that which we want him to be, rather than allowing him to be Jesus. Rather than just following Jesus, as our Mark uh, series is going to be, we want him to be made after our image, rather than vice versa. Let me just go through this. And so, you know, this is the names of them. And, and these are going to appear as we go through um, the, the book of Mark together. And I put here a very oversimplified first descriptor of them. Then the second column is, is that which, to my reading anyway, seems like the most important value for them, the quintessential value. And the last thing is what they thought Messiah was going to be like. Okay, So Pharisees. These guys were fundamentalists or legalists. They studied the Word of God. They knew it intimately. The Torah and the Mark and the Midrash, the commentaries they even memorized. These guys, they, knew, they, were, uh, they were very cerebral or intellectual, right? And they believed that when Messiah came, he would be the greatest rabbi. He would be just able to teach and astonishing, and he knows everything, and he's amazing. The Sadducees, these guys were theologically liberal, but they, they played the political game. Most of the Herodians were Sadducees, and, uh, and they, they saw gaining power through Machiavellian sort of, you know, means. And, and they believed when Messiah came, he would be a wise ruler. He'd be the one who would rule over Israel and beyond, because he's, he's a smarty pants. The Essenes, they were kind of like, a, like an isolationist sect. And, uh, and they, the Qumran community, where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from that, that um, you know, uh, corroborate our Bibles, it's, it's, it's another whole thing. I don't have time to go into it, but they were isolationists. They would go out, they would only listen to the Christian radio station, for sure. They would definitely only be a part of the Christian soccer league. Definitely wouldn't go and surf at that break because there might be a sinner out there and they might drop an F-bomb, okay? That's these guys. Purity was their value. They believed when Jesus came, he'd be the most holified of holy molies, right? Last guys, the zealots. These guys were dominionists. They wanted power, and they wanted to set up a theocratic rule with God at the center and everyone kowtowing to him. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying all of these are wholly right or wholly wrong. There's a mixture in them. But you can see modern versions of this, right? These guys, action. They, action was the thing. Action men, that's what they... And they believed when Jesus came, he would be a warrior king. He would ride into town on his steed. He would lop off the heads of the Romans, set up the kingdom of heaven on earth, and, and so on and, and so forth. And there were many more besides this. But you can see modern elements of that that comes into the way that we project onto Jesus, that which we want him to do for what we think is right. Is it just me? Or can you guys see modern equivalents of this? Can I have up the, the slide, the scary-looking slide? Um, Edvard Munch. The Norwegian painter, you've seen this, has kind of become a shorthand version of uh, referencing anxiety. Anxiety, which is an apprehension that something bad is going to happen when there's no kind of ostensible evidence for it. It's like a coming doom, but I don't know, I don't exactly know why. Here's why I put it up there. The, the Latin term anxiety comes from the, the root of narrowing or constricting. My point is that I think all of those sects had at base root a fear that comes with them. And any misapprehension that we have about Jesus has a fear at base root of it. For the Pharisees, the fear is this. 
Maybe I don't know enough. I, I confess to being a Pharisee. I confess to being versions of all of these. But maybe I don't know enough. The Essenes, maybe I'm just too horrible. Maybe my junk and my crud and all that stuff, maybe, you know, at base root for the Sadducees, I can't, you know, maybe I need to be better at manipulating people. Maybe I need to, I need Jesus to manipulate them for me. That's going to work, you know, or, or the Zealots, I just want power, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm powerless. Maybe I've been beat down. I, I don't want to, you know, do pop psychology on it, but I think all of them have this element to it. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all God's people will see it together. They may see it differently. But friends, let's be those who bring corrective to one another, point each other back to the real Jesus, just Jesus, that we see in the words of Scripture. Let's not allow each other to superimpose upon him things that, that we think are important if there's no warrant for it. Let's be graceful about how we call each other out. But would we commit to that? All the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We're going to come into end here in a, in a second. Um, and uh, and I, I just want to have a little footnote, I guess you'd call it, um, about the way that I think, and as a church, we think the prophetic gift should operate in a modern Jesus community, in a Jesus community today, in this church some of you this is old hat some of you this is like wow i didn't even know we thought that that was all right can i have up the slide with the arrows pointing down to the the bottom corner thank you guys so in the old testament if a prophet gave a word and it was they were trying to manipulate people into rebellion they were to be stoned right they had to get it right the word had to be right we're slightly less intense now, so if you give a wrong word to someone, don't worry, we shall not surely kill you, okay? But that was the thing. It, and, and so today, in a Jesus community, if someone brings a word to you, um, is it true? Have they a track record of it being true? That's, it's one of the tests for it. Second thing, is it rightly motivated? If you can sense that if someone is, is bringing a word to you and, and they've got a wrong motivation to perhaps manipulate you or get you to do something, or I've heard of people saying, look, God's told me that you're going to marry me. And you're like, oh my gosh, like, don't ever do that. You know, <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, surely if it's the Spirit, the Spirit could also, you know, tell the other person. Like, but if, so, if you ever sense that, run like your hair's on fire, okay? In fact run all the way to your, your home group leader and one of the leaders here and we will um, help that to not happen because that's not right. The fruit of their life, the fruit of the prophet's life. You know, uh, is it shown by, I don't know, love and joy and peace and perhaps, you know, patience and kindness and goodness? What about faithfulness and gentleness and, oh my gosh, self-control? Is that in their life? Is that, is that exhibited, the fruit of their life? Is that... Is that it? And, and the reason that this is important is because the prophetic gift is one that we are a little bit uncomfy with in, in churches. Like I said, prophets are often a bit weird. Their message is not always welcomed. And, uh, and I say this because people have said to me, Nick, you need to move in the prophetic more. I, I sometimes do, not as much as not naming any names, but you know, like Willie, for instance, um, you know, who, who is very strong in it. Don't be uncomfortable with it. The Bible says to not look down upon it don't diminish that role in the Jesus community, right? But what's the fruit of their life? 
Are they gracefully sharing it? Is they communicating it in a way which is God-honoring? Rather than you, sir, with a short-armed white shirt out there, and I've got a big stentorian voice. Thus spake the Lord to Rotterdam. That's not, that's not, that's indicative. That, that shows that it's not in the spirit of God. It's when you come up for prayer at the end of service, and please do, or, or when you're in your small groups, when you're in the coffee shop with your girlfriends together, or, or when you're out surfing, you say, look, mate, I've, you know, God's put this thing on my heart for you. I've been praying for you, and I sense this. And go and test it to the word of God. Go and seek godly counsel. But I, I, sense, I sense that this is, is what he's saying. And it'll be, according to 1 Corinthians 14, for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. It'll bring strength to them. It might contain a little corrective. They're strengthening for their encouragement, for their comfort. And if all of those things line up, then reflect on it. That's a little footnote. I didn't really want to go there or end there. I want to invite the band back out here. Uh, and in a second, we're going to come in to close. At this point, guys, jump to your feet because we're going uh, to worship here together. And so uh, there's this great book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. I put a bunch of copies in the uh, cafe if anyone wants to go and grab one. It's, it's a really great, and it's like super skinny. You can read it like, you know, not, not long. And, and in it, he's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about Jesus' method for bringing his goodness to the world that is in dire need. Did anybody else notice? The world is in dire need of forgiveness and grace and kindness and mercy. And guess what? As Mark Foreman says, tag, you're it. But here, Coleman talks about those uh, who Jesus chose because there was a 70, there was a 40, there was a 12, there was a 3 and he talks about how they were just ordinary knockabout sort of folks. There wasn't anything particularly amazing or wonderful about them but there was this thing and this aligns, I was reading it this week and I thought this is exactly what, what we need. What is perhaps the most significant about them, about the disciples was their sincere yearning for God and the realities of his life. The superficiality of the religious life about them had not obsessed their hope for the Messiah. These people were looking for someone to lead them in the way of salvation. Such people, pliable in the hands of the master, could be molded into a new image. Jesus can use anyone who wants to be used. Did you notice Jesus shapes us? It's not vice versa. Will you wait on him? We, uh, in leadership, we say we want people who are a fart. That's an acronym, by the way. That has reference to no other word in the English language. F-A-R-T, faithful, available, reliable, teachable. Are you willing, friends, as we sing this song, to be pliable? Whoop, there you go, I got it. Are you willing to be pliable? Are you willing to boldly dream about where God's going to take us? Are you willing in the back of your in the back of your journals to write down the names of folks who you love and have been praying for? Be bold enough to do that. Be bold enough to 
to write down things in your own life that you need to, obstacles that you need to get out of the way that Jesus could come in. Are you willing to do that? As Isaiah 40 ends, it's a clarion call and it speaks through the thousands of years to us today. And Isaiah says, don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He comes in and he gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. He says, even yous, even those yous, those yous out there, even, even they will grow tired and weary and young men and women, even they will stumble and fall. But here it is. But those who hope in the Lord, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So we lift you high, Jesus. We worship you alone. You're the rock, you're the cornerstone. Are we willing to do that? That will mean us getting off of our own saddle, us saying, you're the one. I'm waiting on you. I'm looking to you. I don't fully understand the end point. It's taking way longer than I thought it would ever take. It, and you're bringing about stuff through means that I wouldn't have thought about. And I'm okay with that. And we get to do it together. You know, mates, this, um, this week we're talking about small groups, home groups. They're the backbone of our church. There's all the information out in the courtyard about it. I was reminded yesterday I did a funeral for a young man down on the beach, 29 years old, died from a fentanyl overdose, an awful, awful drug. And his wonderful family, and we celebrated his life, but his life was stolen. Then I drove up the beach to where my family was at a Christian surfers group where there were dudes encouraging each other, giving each other strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And I thought, what a, what a wild juxtaposition what a wild contrast so friends my prayer for me and my family for you and your family my prayer for my life my prayer for your life is that you would have a pliant heart as we come into this next season as we study God's word together as we be his covenant people together living prophetically not just talking or thinking but living prophetically for the world in need. May you be blessed this week as one who gets to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. God, I pray that my friends would be blessed. I pray that we would move forth from this place with these words ringing in our ears. We lift you high. Lord Jesus, we lift you high. We will not let the rocks cry out in our place. We will do that with our lives. We will honor you and we will love you imperfectly, yes, but with all of our hearts, Lord, we want to love you and serve you and be those who go before you. We ask for your strength in Jesus' name.